In these podcasts, we uncover one chapter after another from the life of the Prophet ﷺ in an attempt to learn about him, love him, and better ourselves through his example. Immersion, mentorship, companionship, and tarbiyah. These are just a few of the things we offer alongside knowledge of the prophetic biography at Sira Intensive. Two weeks dedicated to the study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ and his noble characteristics. So this winter, join me in Dallas, Texas, alongside your classmates from all over the world to learn the story of the life of the best of humanity, the mercy to mankind, the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ. Go to sirahintensive.com to register and for more information. Bismillah walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een Inshallah continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Asiratul Nabawiyah, the prophetic biography Today inshallah we're going to be uh, discussing and talking about the end of the fourth year of hijrah the end of the fourth year of the Prophet Sallallahu residence in the city of Medina. Now what we've discussed previously is, um, are some of the events that occurred during the fourth year. Uh, namely, previously we talked about Ghazwatu Dhat al-Riqa' a very difficult journey undertaken by the Prophet Sallallahu and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum that resulted in them bandaging their feet uh, and enduring a lot of hardship. We now arrive towards the end, end of the fourth year of Hijrah. Now, this is going to take us back. I've, I've consistently said something throughout our discussion of the fourth year of Hijrah, and that is a lot of the events of the fourth year were a result, a consequence, and a reaction to the battle of Uhud, which had occurred towards the end of the third year of Hijrah, the previous year. That a lot of these events that are happening here in the fourth year that we've read about, Fana Amr ibn Umayyah Damri and the uh, capture of uh, some of the Sahaba like Zayd and Khabab, um, and we also talked about uh, Zayd and Khubab, we also talked about the massacre of the Sahaba uh, at Bir Ma'una. A lot of these events were um, occurred basically as a reaction to the Battle of Uhud. What we're going to talk about here today, one of the major events of this year, is actually um, directly a result of the Battle of Uhud. Not even an indirect result, it is a direct result. So if we recall from the Battle of Uhud, and you know, folks can go back and read about the Battle of Uhud, you can listen uh, to the previous sessions on the podcast about the Battle of Uhud as well, that when the battle concluded, there was a little bit of a back and forth. Uh, Abu Sufyan, before he left Uhud, before he left the battlefield, the Muslims had of course sustained some very serious losses as we talked about in a lot of detail. And as he was leaving Abu Sufyan, he made a few uh, announcements and pronouncements. He stood there and he kind of announced a few things and said a few things. Some of them were very uh, meant to be very offensive uh, and to kind of, like we say, rub it in, almost gloat about their uh, supposed victory or apparent victory at the Battle of Uhud. And some of them uh, were also challenges about the future and what lies ahead in their uh, conflict with one another, the Muslims and the Quraysh. And he said things like, that you will find that some of your uh, fallen have been mutilated. I did not tell people to mutilate the dead, but I did not prevent them either. And he said a few other things about like Lat and Uzza, that today our idols have proved to be dominant. And the Prophet ﷺ previously, he had told the Sahaba not to engage in, you know, what we call today in our culture, uh, the young people refer to it as almost like trash talk. Right? When they're playing sports or competing against one another. The Prophet ﷺ told the Sahaba not to engage in this type of talk because it's not befitting. But when Abu Sufyan started talking about the idols and started speaking disrespectfully about the deen and about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet ﷺ told Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu respond to him. And uh, uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu ta'ala started to respond to him, Allahu rabbuna wa rabbukum, that Allah is our Lord and Master, He is your Lord and Master, and he started to respond to him. 
as Abu Sufyan was departing from the battlefield, he said that we will meet uh, at the place of Badr. Uh, we will meet at the place of Badr a year from today. We will meet at the place of Badr a year from today. He had issued this challenge. And so a year from the date, so we talked about Ghazwatu Dhat al-Riqa, the previous uh, battle that we talked about, the journey, which was in the beginning of Jumadul Ula. The Prophet ﷺ returned back to Medina from that journey, Ghazwatu Dhat al-Riqa, the journey of bandages. He returned back from that, remained, uh, he resided, remained in Medina for the remainder of Jumadul Ula, Jumadul Akhirah, and the month of Rajab. The Prophet ﷺ stayed in the city of Medina. When the month of Sha'ban came, the Prophet ﷺ gathered the Sahaba together. Some of the books of Sirah, um, certain scholars of the Sirah like Al-Waqidi, they mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ, he journeyed, he traveled with um, nearly 1,500 Sahaba. So this was a very large group for the Muslims. So the Prophet ﷺ gathered together about 1,500 Sahaba and the Prophet ﷺ set out from Medina in the direction of Badr to meet Abu Sufyan with the army of the Quraysh there. Abu Sufyan had issued the challenge, I will see you a year later, right? In the month of Sha'ban at Badr, I will see you there and we'll finish this once and for all. And so this, you know, uh, on one side, a lot of times because of the climate and the culture and a lot of the political rhetoric that goes on, we talk, we emphasize and rightfully so, and we clarify about how the Prophet and the Sahaba did not necessarily seek out bloodshed. You know, war is a lot of times a consequence, a political necessity, and necessary in order to be able to defend one's beliefs and life and property. But the Prophet ﷺ and the Sahaba did not seek out bloodshed. At the same time, this also established the element of dignity and honor. That the Prophet ﷺ said, you have challenged us, you have called us, and we will respond to the challenge. We will stand our ground because at the same time, the implications of not going could have also been very severe. That could be seen as, that could be understood or determined as weakness or, or fearfulness. That they are afraid of us now, they are weak now. And that could further embolden the Meccans to launch an attack against Medina, which we see ended up happening in the fifth year anyways in the Battle of the Trench. Ghazwatul Ahzab, which we'll be talking about in a week or two. And so the Prophet Sallallahu gathered 1500 Sahaba and he marched out in the direction of Badr to meet there at the appointed time and place that Abu Sufyan had challenged them to the previous year after the incident of Uhud. There's a couple of different narrations. Um, Al-Waqidi says that the Prophet Sallallahu left Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu ta'ala anhu, a great sahabi who was a poet and a warrior, he had left him in charge of the city of Medina um, in his absence. Um, but Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham, they mentioned something very fascinating that the individual the Prophet left in charge of the city of Medina was Abdullah, who was the son of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul. Now, to refresh our memory, Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, the father, he is who is oftentimes referred to as Ra'isul Munafiqeen. He is the leader of the hypocrites, right? And he was a very um, staunch opponent of the Prophet and of the Muslims. He was constantly trying to undermine the authority of the Prophet Trying to, he was never successful, but nevertheless he kept attempting to. He was constantly trying to cause discord amongst the Muslims. And constantly in contact and communication, conspiring against the Muslims in Medina, he was in constant communication and contact with the Jews in and around Medina, the Meccans, uh, the Quraysh in Mecca. He was always in contact with these people, conspiring against the Muslims in Medina and the Prophet So he's a very, very problematic individual. And the Prophet you can say, tolerated him to a certain degree. He relegated him. He did not allow him to cause any greater harm, but at the same time he tolerated him because he pretended to be Muslim. He would, at the second that the situation would become even slightly heated, and he would be called out on what he had been up to, 
and some of his inner workings, he would immediately proclaim to be a Muslim and claim to be, you know, uh, loyal to Islam and the Prophet ﷺ and then go right back to his previous actions, right? And so the Prophet ﷺ ta had to tolerate him because the Prophet ﷺ said otherwise people will say, Muhammad kills his own people. Billah. And, but his son, Abdullah, who had the same name as the father, Abdullah bin Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulud, the son was a true Muslim, was a true believer. وَحَسُنَ إِسْلَامُهُ His Islam was, very, was one of excellence. And he in fact had on multiple occasions spoken to the Prophet about you know, just this, um, this, this very troublesome and this very um, difficult predicament that he found himself in. Where he was a firm believer, a sincere believer, dedicated to Allah and His Messenger But he was... You know, stuck with this father who was just um, had such malicious intent towards Allah and His Messenger. So he had a very, he was stuck in a predicament and he had spoken to the Prophet on multiple occasions. We're going to see later on as well that he would, he would end up having confrontations even with his father, at which the Prophet would advise him on what to do and what not to do. <clears throat> but we'll talk about that at its rightful time. So uh, Ibn Hisham and Ibn Ishaq, some of the scholars of the Sirah mentioned that the son was the one the Prophet ﷺ left in charge of the city of Medina. And again from that we can see the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ, the, the, uh, you know, the uh, kindness, the generosity, uh, the empathy and the wisdom of the Prophet ﷺ, that the Prophet ﷺ did not hold the crimes or in the sins of the father against the son. He didn't do that. And in fact, the Prophet ﷺ, I mean, think about how difficult that would be for any of us. Right? And think about how, you know, a lot of times our own hatred and jealousy and envy and anger and, and malice, you know, bold and, and, and uh, anger um, gets the best of us. Right? That if somebody says or does something unbecoming to us, somebody says or does something inappropriate with us, then forget about that individual that, or that person's children. That person's entire extended family all of a sudden is now you know, an enemy to us. We declare war against anyone who lives in that person's neighborhood. Khalas, finished, this is it. Right? So that's, that's problematic. But the Messenger of Allah will use him. He was sent to purify us and purify our hearts and teach us how to purify our inner conditions. And so the Prophet ﷺ was exemplary in that regard. And we see that the Prophet ﷺ not only does not hold the father's actions against the son, but the Prophet ﷺ has the clarity, the vision, the, the honor, the nobility to be able to see the good qualities within the son. And the Prophet ﷺ is still able to note that not only is this young man a good young man, but he has leadership potential. And the Prophet ﷺ puts him in charge of the city of Medina in his own absence. And so that is the example of the Messenger ﷺ. And as I've been saying, especially the last couple of sessions, this is why we study the life of the Prophet ﷺ. These, you know, along with everything else, of course, we all know about the big lessons and the big events, but when we sit down in detail, in depth, to study the life of the Prophet ﷺ, where it takes us weeks and weeks and weeks, session after session after session, to go over something that maybe we would have skimmed through in 20 minutes, this is the benefit that we're able to observe and see and, and, and really mine, you know, get into the depths of each and every single little action of the Prophet ﷺ and be able to pull the gems and the wisdom from there. And so this is a profound lesson on how to deal with people, both the good and the bad. And so the Prophet ﷺ departs from the city of Medina with about 1500 Sahaba. He leaves, as I mentioned, in the narration at least of Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham, which is usually what is given preference to. He departs with, uh, he puts uh, Abdullah, the son of Abdullah bin Ubay bin Sulul, in charge of the city of Medina. And the Prophet ﷺ proceeds on to the place of Mecca. Now, Abu Sufyan hearing, remembering also, 
that he's the one who had issued the challenge. And then hearing that the Prophet ﷺ has departed from the city of Medina, he also gathers uh, a force together and they set out from the city of Mecca. And some say that he reached a little bit outside of the city of Mecca. Some of the books of history mention that he proceeded a little bit further, but still fairly close to the city of Mecca, a place called Usfan, which we've talked about before, which is closer to Mecca than it is Badr, um, that he reached at that particular point, And then he announced, he you know, turned to the forces, and he announced to them that he had brought with him, Ya ma'ashara Quraysh, innahu la yuslihukum illa amun khasib, tar'awna fihi shajar wa tashrabuna fihi laban. He says that, O oh, people of Quraysh, it makes sense to go and fight during a time of prosperity. It makes sense to go and engage in a battle, in a war during a time of prosperity where you are reaping and harvesting the fruits from the trees, where you are drinking the milk of the animals who are nice and healthy and fat. But he says, But this year has been very difficult. We've been dealing with a drought. We've been dealing with some economic hardship. He says, I'm going back to Mecca. You should go back as well. So that's his little out, right? That he basically bails, he flakes. And so he says, I'm going to go back because things are bad back at home. And so I need to go back home. And I advise you to do the same. Faraja Annas and the people went back home. But this is the interesting thing, right? When they got back to Mecca because they had left Mecca under all this premise and pomp of we're going to go and finish off Muhammad wasallam and his people uh, and we're going to let them know once and for all. And then they go, they camp out at Usfan for a few days and then they turn around and they come back home. When they came back, the people of Mecca are waiting there. They're like, how'd you get back so fast? What happened? And they said, oh, you know, we went there, we got to Usfan, we thought about it for a while, and then we said we should just come home. So the people of Mecca started taunting them, calling them Jeshu Sawiq. Sawiq basically was, what they would do is that they would take like wheat or barley or oats, grain, they would take grain, and they would mix it up sometimes with, you know, uh, different other little things like some dates or, you know, raisins and things like that. They would mix it all up, and it would be almost like a mixture. They would kind of grind it down almost into a powder. They would take all these different things, they would mix it up, they would grind it, dry it, and then grind it down into a powder, and then they would package it very tightly, and because it was good for travel, it was easy to travel. Think about like almost having like, uh, you know, just having like, like protein shakes, right? Or protein bars. That was basically their equivalent. And this was common amongst the Arabs. So when they would go out for battle, that's what they would do. They would pack this type of food and they would take it and it was very easy. What they would do is when it was time to eat, they would take a little bit of water, they would put some of it in it, they would mix it up and it would turn into like a porridge or something like that. Um, in case somebody doesn't know what I'm talking about, it'd be like kheer. Okay, so I think that works better. So then it would turn into that type of like, you know, almost like a pudding. And then that's, they would just eat it. It was quick, it was easy, it was fast, and it was nourishing to the body. So it was very common during those times. And they would have whole bags of this, and that's what would feed the army. So they basically went, camped out there for a few days. Now that they knew they weren't going ahead, they basically finished an entire supply that was for a much longer journey. Right? Might as well. And then they came back all full and fat with added a few pounds. So the people of Mecca started taunting them. Jaysh Sawik, they called them the army of protein bars. Right? They've been packing on the pro, they've been knocking down the protein bars, mashallah. Right? So instead of coming back having lost some blood, they came back having gained a few pounds. Right? So the people of Mecca started taunting them as well. They were saying, You went there to go eat. Right? You went there to go eat. So the Prophet ﷺ is now there at the place of Badr, waiting for them to show up. These people flaked out, you know, had their little protein bar party, uh, protein bar party and then they went ahead and came, went back to Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ stayed camped out at the place of Badr for eight days. Because that was typically considered like a standard of that time. 
All right, it was a standard of that time that when you went out for a fixed appointment, like a fixed meeting, like in the battlefield, you went out there and you gave the enemy eight days from your arrival to show up or to communicate or whatever they needed to do. You gave them eight days. And after eight days, you departed back. And now at that point in time, you could not be called the retreating army. You, you had fulfilled the challenge, right? So the Prophet ﷺ stayed for eight days. And after the completion of that eight-day period, now the Prophet ﷺ, he returned back to the city of Medina. However, before the Prophet ﷺ returned back, there were just a couple of other interactions. Makhshi ibn Amr al-Damri, who belonged to, excuse me, Banu Damra. This was um, a, a, a tribe, a Bedouin tribe that lived near the area of Badr, Banu Damra. One of their leaders, Makhshi bin Amr, he came to meet the Prophet ﷺ. What's very interesting is, this is going to go all the way back to the early part of the second year of Hijrah, you know, over two, uh, uh, nearly two years ago, that nearly two years ago, the Prophet ﷺ had a small campaign, a small battle, um, that was called Ghazwatu Waddan. It was one of the first Ghazawat, one of the first campaigns of the Prophet ﷺ that he participated in in the Medinan era. And there wasn't any fighting or anything, but the objective there was because a lot of the Bedouin tribes, when the Prophet ﷺ migrated to the city of Medina, they started like, you know, scoping out the Muslims in Medina and even plotting and planning how they would attack them or, you know, fight them and things like that. So the Prophet ﷺ put together initially armies of two, three hundred Sahaba and he went out to these specific strategic spots, uh, a ways from Medina, outside of Medina, and he camped out there for a few days. And then the tribes would come there and the Prophet ﷺ had entered into alliances and agreements, peace treaties with these tribes. You won't attack us, we won't attack you. And if somebody else attacks us, you will come and help us defend ourselves. And if somebody comes and attacks you, we'll come help you defend yourself. Right? He had established these, these agreements and these uh, alliances with some of these tribes. So Banu Damra was one of the tribes that the Prophet ﷺ had established such a treaty with. So as the Prophet ﷺ was there with this army of 1,500 people, this leader of this tribe, Banu Damra, Makhshi bin Amr, he comes to meet the Prophet ﷺ. And he says, Ya Muhammad, have you come to fight against the Quraysh here at this place? And the Prophet ﷺ said, Naam, ya akha bani Damra. He said, yes, O brother of Banu Damra, respecting the terms of the treaty. But the Prophet ﷺ also sensed a little bit of an agitation or a little bit of a confrontational tone from him. So the Prophet ﷺ says, وَإِن شِئْتَ رَدَدْنَا إِلَيْكَ مَا كَانَ بَيْنَنَا وَبَيْنَكَ وَجَالَدْنَاكَ he says, however, let's be clear about one thing. I came here to fight Quraysh, I'm not here to fight you. But I sense a little bit of aggression and agitation in your voice. If you want, we can know the previous agreement that we had, and then we can settle things, if that's what you'd like. I, I want to take this opportunity to explain one thing, very fascinating. Again, because if somebody without context reads that, it sounds like, oh, there we go again, these Muslims going around picking a fight, right? So how do we exactly understand this? You have to understand these are the Bedouin tribes of Arabia. The Bedouins had a particular mannerism to them. And it's very prominently displayed in the Prophet Sallallahu interactions with the Bedouins. One of the most, you know, uh, one of my own personal favorite interactions of the Prophet Sallallahu with an individual is with a man who would come to visit uh, the Prophet ﷺ in the ninth year of Hijrah, shortly before the passing of the Prophet ﷺ. His name escapes me right now. I don't know why. But uh, a Bedouin man would come to visit the Prophet ﷺ. <clears throat> and he, the way he would speak to the Prophet, Ya Muhammad! Right? He kind of like, the way he spoke to the Prophet, and the Prophet ﷺ spoke to him similarly. It's a very beautiful interaction. But eventually, he ends up accepting Islam and the Prophet ﷺ informs him of the obligations of the deen and the religion. And he says, I'm going to go back and teach this to my people. So it's a very beautiful interaction, hadith, from the end of the life of the Prophet ﷺ. But the reason why I bring that up is the Bedouins had a particular mannerism to them. And see, this is also part of the wisdom and the lesson from the life of the Prophet ﷺ that you know, as Ali bin Abi Talib radiallahu ta'ala anhu taught us, he said, 
speak to people in a way they can understand and comprehend. Right? Interact with people according to their culture and their temperament and their demeanor. And that's very important to know. So the Prophet ﷺ knew that when you speak to the Bedouins, this was not like picking a fight. But when you speak to the Bedouins, there was a little bit of you gotta pound your fist on the table and you gotta talk very confidently. Because th there's a whole thought process behind it. These Bedouins, you are their allies. They don't want to see you being meek and humble and oh, mashallah brother, thank you for visiting us. Right? That doesn't inspire confidence within them. Because they'll say, look at these people. Their backs are broken. That was an expression that they had. Their backs are broken. Right? That these people, what kind of allies are they going to make? We need to go talk to somebody else. We should go talk to the Quraysh. These people, Medina is, is spoiled them. Right? But that was the mentality. So the Prophet ﷺ speaks to him in a way, he says, yes. Brother of Banu Damra, lets him know, look, you're my brother. Right? We have an agreement. We are allies. You are my brother. But at the same time, if you want, we can know, we can void our previous agreement and we can settle this if you'd like. And look at his response. He says, La wallahi ya Muhammad. He says, No, no, no. I swear to God, O Muhammad, there's no need for that. Malana bi dhalika min haja. I ain't here to mess with you. Malana bi dhalika min haja. I ain't here to mess with you. I don't, we, don't, we don't need any of that. So the Prophet ﷺ understood the psychology of these individuals and he speaks to them in a way that inspires confidence. Because as soon as the man hears this, he says, okay, okay. All right, that's good. That's good. That's the dude who's going to get our back. Because that's what they were interested in. All right, survival. And then the Prophet ﷺ returned back to the city of Medina and there was no fighting that occurred on this particular journey. This is called Ghazwatu Badr al-Akhirah. This is called the second battle of Badr or the second Badr campaign because there was no battle but it's called the second Badr campaign. Alright? There's a lot more detail here. I won't get into all of it but I'll mention just a little bit of it. You know, one of the, one of the very interesting and fascinating dynamics at that particular time was that poetry was a major and very powerful medium of communication. And so... In this conflict between the Meccans and the Muslims, there was a lot of back and forth and a lot of it was in the form of poetry. So now that the Muslims had gone there, sat, stayed there for eight days as was the custom, uh, the, the custom of the land, and nobody showed up to confront them even though they're the ones who had issued the challenge, they flaked on their own challenge, right? Abdullah bin Rawaha radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he wrote some poetry um, and sent it to the Quraysh kind of letting them know that, look, you know, we, we know what's up. And everyone's taken notice of the fact that you people, you know, had your little party at Usfan and went back home. Everybody knows, all right? We're keeping score. We just want you to know. And so he wrote the poetry. I'll just mention it. He said, وَعَدْنَا أَبَا سُفْيَانَ بَدْرًا فَلَمْ نَجِدْ لِمِعَادِهِ صِدْقًا وَمَا كَانَ وَافِيًا فَأُقْسِمُ لَوْ لَاقَيْتَنَا فَلَقِيْتَنَا لَأُبْتَ ذَمِيمًا وَفْقَدْتَ الْمَوَالِيَا تَرَكْنَا بِهِ أَوْصَالُ عُتْبَةَ وَإِبْنِهِ وَعَمْرًا أَبَا جَهْلٍ تَرَكْنَاهُ ثَاوِيَا عَصَيْتُمْ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ أُفِّلْ لِدِينِكُمْ وَأَمْرِكُمْ السِّيئِ الَّذِي كَانَ غَاوِيَا فَإِنِّي وَإِنْ عَنَّفْتُمُونِي لَقَائِلُوا فِدًا لِرَسُولِ اللَّهِ أَهْلِي وَمَالِيَا أَطَعْنَاهُ لَمْ نَعْدِلْهُ فِيْنَا بِغَيْرِهِ شَهَابًا لَنَا فِي ظُلْمَةِ اللَّيْلِ هَادِيَا um, just to kind of briefly, it's difficult to translate it word for word because it's poetry. It has a lot of expression in it. But basically what he's saying is that Abu Sufyan had made an appointment with us at the place of Badr. We showed up but we didn't find anybody coming from their side. He says that and I swear that if they would have come and met us in the battlefield, we would have, we, they would have left humiliated and their families would have been mourning some people. He says that... We went to the same place where Utbah and Abu Jahl, we had last left them dead, the previous battle of Badr. He says, you people have um, opposed the Messenger of Allah and chosen a very terrible course. And this will only lead you to ruin. And he says that if what I'm saying seems offensive to you 
and you want to say something offensive to me, that's okay because I've dedicated me, my life, my family, and all my wealth to the Messenger of Allah He says, we have followed him and we will never ever leave him for anything or anyone. He is our shining star that guides us in the darkness of the night. Right, so he spoke these very powerful words, and then the narrations go on to say Hassan bin Thabit, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, similarly wrote some poetry, and there was particularly kind of a dynamic between Hassan bin Thabit, um, radiallahu anhu, and Abu Sufyan. They constantly used to kind of respond to one another. So Hassan bin Thabit wrote something or said some poetry, and then Abu Sufyan uh, responded to him back and forth. But that basically was the battle, the second meeting, the second campaign of Badr. The last thing I wanted to mention here because there's a, a revelation of an ayah at this particular incident during this campaign. Many of the Sahaba had kind of this impression or had this idea that they didn't expect the Makkans to actually come and show up for the battle. But they came prepared. But many of the Sahaba, because this was around the time in the season where they would basically have a marketplace. And since there were so many Sahaba, 1500, this was kind of like a, a particular time when they would exchange and trade a lot of goods, right? So this was the time for market. So what they did was they ended up bringing a lot of their trading goods with them on this particular campaign. They were camped out there for eight days. Nobody was showing up. So with the permission of the Prophet ﷺ, they started buying and selling and trading and they also set up a market for the nearby Bedouin tribes to be able to come and buy and purchase and trade and do whatever they needed to do. And um, the narrations mention, Al-Waqidi and uh, Al-Waqidi mentions, فَأَقَامُوا بِبَدْرٍ مُدَّةَ الْمَوْسِمِ الَّذِي كَانَ يُقْعَدُ فِيهَا ثَمَانَ They stayed there for eight days. By the time they returned back, they had made twice as much as they had come with. Like Allah granted them barakah and blessing in, in their business, in their market that they had set up there as well. And that's where they went back. And at that time, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed the ayah from Surah Ali Imran, Surah number 3, ayah number 174, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, that with the blessing of Allah and the, 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 the benevolence of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the gifts of Allah, لَمْ يَمْسَسْهُمْ سُوءٌ No harm came to them. وَاتَّبَعُوا رِضْوَانَ اللَّهِ And they followed the path that leads to the pleasure of Allah. وَاللَّهُ ذُو فَضْلٍ عَظِيمٌ And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a very great blessing that He bestows upon His slaves. So this ayah was revealed at that time that because they did what Allah and His Messenger commanded them and asked them to do, they not only did not end up meeting any harm, but they were able to go back with the blessing and the gifts from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala where they were able to double their money and double their profits. And that was the last major campaign of the fourth year. Now here towards um, the end of the session, what I'd like to mention is some of the... Uh, other incidents of the fourth year. This is from the style of some of the writers such as Ibn Kathir, uh, Rahimullahu Ta'ala, and others that what they'll do is at the end of the discussion of a particular year of Hijrah, they will then kind of consolidate some of the other notable events of that particular year. So I'd like to kind of go through them here at this particular point. It's mentioned that in the month of Jumad al-Ula, in the fourth year of Hijrah, the grandson of the Prophet ﷺ, who was, his name was Abdullah. He was the son of Uthman bin Affan. And the daughter of the Prophet ﷺ, Ruqayyah. Who had passed away two years ago at the conclusion of the Battle of Badr. At the conclusion of the Battle of Badr. Ruqayyah radiallahu ta'ala anha. Her son, right, who had lost his mother. This is the grandson of the Prophet ﷺ. He passed away during the fourth year of Hijrah, in the month of Jumad al-Ula, earlier this year. While the Prophet ﷺ was in Medina, he was six years old at the time, child. He had fallen ill, and he passed away in his illness. And it's mentioned that the Prophet ﷺ and Uthman bin Affan, 
Of course, the Prophet ﷺ washed the body, participated in the washing of the body and the shrouding of the body. The Prophet ﷺ offered the janazah for his grandson. And then Uthman bin Affan and the Prophet ﷺ got, you know, when you lower a body into the grave, somebody has to get down into the grave and lower the body in. The Prophet ﷺ and Uthman bin Affan lowered the body uh, of the child into the grave. This was the son of Uthman and the grandson of the Prophet ﷺ. So a very tragic loss in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. It was also in this fourth year of Hijrah that one of the very notable companions, one of the early Muslims, um, in fact it's mentioned that he was one of the, one of the first individuals to become Muslim. Um, Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu. Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he had two relationships to the Prophet Number one, his mother, his mother whose name was Barra bint Abdul Muttalib. His mother, Abu Salama's mother, uh, Abu Salama's name, by the way, was Abdullah. Abdullah bin Abdul Asad ibn Hilal ibn Abdullah ibn Umar ibn Makhzum al Qurashi al Makhzumi. His mother was the aunt of the Prophet. The mother Abu Salama and the father of the Prophet were brother and sister. Alright, so he was a first cousin of the Prophet. So very close. On top of that, both the Prophet and Abu Salama had been nursed by the same woman. Thuwayba, who was the, uh, a slave who was owned by Abu Lahab, she was freed later on. Thuwayba Mawlat Abi Lahab, she had nursed, breastfed both the Prophet and Abu Salama. So they were foster brothers, Rada'i brothers, milk brothers. So this was a double relationship. They were not only cousins, but they were also brothers. And just as a side note, not to get into too much detail, we talked about it all the way back in the beginning, where we talked about the mothers of the Prophet ﷺ, the women who had nursed him, that the Prophet ﷺ taught us, يُحْرَمُ مِنَ الرِّضَاعِ مَا يُحْرَمُ مِنَ النَّسَبِ That what the relationships that are established through blood, Similarly, milk establishes those relationships. So once a woman nurses a child, she is his mother. Alright? So they were brothers in that sense. A very brief, we've talked about Abu Salama back in the very beginning of the early people to accept Islam. But a brief snapshot of just, you know, who he was. He accepted Islam on the same day as Abu Ubaidah, uh, Ibn al-Jarrah, Uthman bin Affan, Arqam ibn Abil Arqam. They all accepted Islam on the same day in the very first few days of Nubuwa and Prophethood. So he was from back in the day. He had stuck by the side of the Prophet from the very first, from the very get-go. He was sent along with his wife Ummu Salama by the Prophet to Habasha, to East Africa on that initial migration. So they were some of those people. There was a group of the people who had gone to Habasha who had returned back to Mecca. They were amongst that group. So they had come back to Mecca. Then we talked about, we dedicated an entire session to talking about the very tragic and difficult story of the migration of the family of Abu Salama. How when they tried to leave Medina, uh, leave Mecca to go to Medina, excuse me, how the family of Umm Salama and Abu Salama showed up and tore the whole family apart. And they took, they, 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 pushed Abu Salama aside, Umm Salama's uh, family took her, and Abu Salama's family took their son, and they split the whole family apart, and they were separated for a very long time, almost a year. Until then they were finally reunited in Quba, right outside of Medina. So they had been through a lot. And Abu Salama had participated in the battles of Badr and Uhud, with the Prophet wasallam. So, right? so he was somebody who had fought by the side of the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ trusted him very, very much. Unfortunately, during the battle of Uhud, he had sustained an injury in his shoulder. He had sustained a wound in his shoulder. He had spent about a month or so recovering. Um, and he had recovered fairly well. For the most part, he had seemed like he was healthy, he had recovered. And so a few months later, after Uhud, a little while later after he was recovered and he presented himself to the Prophet ﷺ that I'm ready, the Prophet ﷺ sent him on one of the campaigns we talked about, um, and we alluded to it earlier, um, to lead the group of Sahaba. Unfortunately, during that journey, he re-injured, reopened the wound, and it got infected and he came back to Medina very, very ill and very sick. And that illness and sickness led to his passing, led to his death.
What's very interesting and very fascinating about, um, you know, talking about his passing and talking about, you know, his death is that Abu Salama, he narrates only one hadith from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And, you know, I, uh, he only narrates one hadith from the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And that is the hadith that the Prophet, uh, that Abu Salama radiallahu ta'ala anhu, he says, um, Ummu Salama narrates. This hadith is found in the Musnad of Imam Ahmad. That Ummu Salama says, Atani Abu Salama, yawman min indi Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam. One day, Ummu Salama says, Abu Salama, my husband at that time, he came home for, after spending some time with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. I heard something from the Prophet sallallahu today, and it made me so happy. Like it was so profound what I heard from the Prophet ﷺ. I was fascinated by what I heard from him today. And he goes on to say that the Prophet ﷺ said, لا يصيب أحداً من المسلمين مصيبة That whenever any Muslim suffers some type of a loss or is dealing with a tragedy, فَيَسْتَرْجِعُ عِنْدَ مُصِيبَتِهِ And when he deals with this loss or tragedy, he says, إِنَّا لِلَّهِ وَإِنَّا إِلَيْهِ رَاجِعُونَ and then he says, ثُمَّ يَقُولِ He makes the following dua. Allahumma ajurni fi musibati وَخْلُفْ لِي خَيْرًا مِنْهَا That oh Allah, reward me in my difficulty, in my adversity, and give me something better than what I have lost. This is the dua. إِلَّا فُعِلَ بِهِ That whenever anyone reacts to a loss in this manner, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon, and then says the dua, Allahumma ajunni fi musibati, wa khlufli khayran minha, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will in fact give that person something better. And Allah will in fact reward that person for their difficulty. So Ummu Salama says, فَحَفِظْتُ ذَلِكَ مِنْهُ I memorized that, and I learned it from my husband Abu Salama at that time. فَلَمَّا تُوُفِّيَ أَبُو Salama, When Abu Salama passed away, istarja'atu. I said, Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi raji'oon. وَقُلْتُ اللَّهُمَ أَجُنِّي فِي مُصِيبَتِي وَخْلُفْ لِي خَيْرًا مِنْهَا And I made the same dua, that Allah reward me in my loss and give me something better. She says, but for a moment I thought to myself, I had full conviction in the dua, right? But I thought to myself, رَجَعْتُ إِلَى نَفْسِي قُلْتُ مِنْ أَيْنَ لِي خَيْرٌ مِنْ أَبِي سَلَمَا Where will I ever find a better husband than Abu Salama? Where will I ever find a better husband than Abu Salama? فَلَمَّا قَدَّتْ عِدَّتِي When my idda was over, because Abu Salama passed away in, you know, short, about uh, two weeks after he had returned back from that journey, in the month of Jumad al-Ula. When my idda was finished in the month of Shawwal, after Ramadan. فَلَمَّا قَدَّتْ عِدَّتِي When uh, my idda was done, it was complete, it was over. إِسْتَأْذَنَ عَلَيَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَى the Prophet ﷺ asked permission to come and visit me. I was tanning a hide, the skin of an animal. I was drying it out, I was tanning, I was working. So my hands were kind of dirty. So I washed my hands properly. I you know, got properly dressed, covered up. I sat down and I said, please come in. I put a comfortable pillow and I asked the Prophet ﷺ to have a seat. فَقَعَدَ عَلَيْهَا The Prophet ﷺ sat down on the pillow. فَخَطَبَنِي إِلَى نَفْسِي And the Prophet ﷺ presented the proposal to me. He proposed to marry me. فَلَمَّا فَرَغَ مِنْ مَقَالَتِهِ When the Prophet ﷺ was done with you know, the proposal, I said, O Messenger of Allah, مَا بِي أَلَّا تَكُونَ بِكَ الرَّقْبَةِ She says that it's not that I would not be honored to be your wife. But she says, there's, there's an issue. And I want to be very open and transparent with you. And this, from this we see the etiquette as well of the openness and the straightforwardness of discussion at the time of considering marriage. That she said, I'm a very, very 
private, closed-off woman. Like I just, I have difficulty warming up to people and kind of letting people into my life. It's just the way I am. Right, I'm very to myself. And I knowing myself, I know that it'll take me some time to get comfortable with you, to warm up to you, to really, you know, conduct myself as a wife should conduct herself with a husband. Um, and I'm afraid that of offending you in the meantime, while I get over my own issues, and that Allah would be upset with me. Because you are the messenger of God. You would be my husband, but that wouldn't change the fact that you are the messenger of God. And I cannot offend you. Right? I'd rather not be married to you than rather marry you and offend you. She says, number two, I'm also an older woman. I'm an older woman. I mean, you just that's, you should know that. Right? So I'm not a younger woman. I'm an older woman. And number three, And I have children. I have children I have to look over. I'm busy. And I have a lot of responsibility to my kids who have lost their father. The Prophet ﷺ said, Okay, I hear you loud and clear. He says, He says that as for that apprehension that you have about kind of getting comfortable, you know, maybe in terms of privacy and intimacy, that apprehension or inhibition that you have, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will make that easier for you. I'm not worried about that. And that's the Prophet's way of saying that, you know, don't worry, I'll be very accommodating and understanding. Right? That also shows the gentleness and, and the, the chivalry of the Messenger. Right? Number two, he says, He says, as far as you talking about being an old woman, what do I look like? It's beautiful, right? He says, what do I, he says, I'm already, I have dealt with what you're talking about. What do I look like? I'm an older man. I would like to have an older mature woman that I can converse with and that can understand what I'm talking about. So, and he says, as for the third point that you made, look at the honor of the Messenger He says, you talk about your children, your children will be my children. Why are you worried? Your kids will be my kids. You won't be looking after them alone. You won't have to take care of them alone. You won't have to provide for them alone. I'm here. I will be your husband and I will be a father to them. And so she says that I at that time agreed to marry the Messenger Wasallam, And I was married to the Prophet Wasallam. And she goes on to say, فَقَدَ أَبْدَلَنِي اللَّهُ بِأَبِي سَلَمَةَ خَيْرًا مِّنْهُ It's a very profound statement. She says, and in fact Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala did give me Someone better than Abu Salama, which there weren't many of those in the world, but he gave me better than Abu Salama, and that is the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alaihi wasallam. Right? So very uh, beautiful narration, and so this also happened during the fourth year uh, of Hijrah, uh, the fourth year of the Prophet sallallahu residence in the city of Medina. Uh, a couple of uh, other very quick points uh, of major uh, or notable things that happened uh, during this fourth year of Hijrah. Um, actually, earlier in the year, I should have mentioned this earlier. Um, earlier in the year, um, Hussein radiallahu ta'ala anhu was born to Ali and Fatima radiallahu ta'ala anhuma. Right? So, Hussein, the grandson of the Prophet, was also born during the fourth year of Hijrah. Another very notable event that happened uh, as well earlier in this year was that the Prophet ﷺ married another woman whose name was Zainab bint Khuzayma. Zainab bint Khuzayma. She was previously mentioned, uh, excuse me, she was previously married. Ibn Lathir in Al-Ghaba, he mentions that she was previously married to Abdullah bin Jahash. Why is that notable? So Zainab radiallahu ta'ala anhu, this Zainab, Zainab bint Khuzayma, she was a woman of Makkah. She was a Meccan woman. She was married to Abdullah bin Jahash. Who is Abdullah bin Jahash? He is the cousin of the Prophet And he is the same Abdullah bin Jahash, who a year ago was killed in the battle of Uhud. So she was a widow. He was killed in the battle of Uhud, fighting in the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. He was actually along with Hamza radiallahu ta'ala anhu, his body was mutilated. 
along with Hamza radiallahu anhu. Right? So the Prophet married his widow, again to take care of his family. Um, she was a very remarkable woman. She was known, her title was Ummul Masakin. Ummul Masakin, the mother of the poor. And she was called that لِكَثْرَةِ صَدَقَاتِهَا عَلَيْهِمْ وَبَرِّهَا لَهُمْ وَإِحْسَانِهَا عَلَيْهِمْ That she was known this because she used to take care of the poor in Medina. She used to feed them, take care. She was like a mother to anybody who could not take care of themselves. And the Prophet ﷺ gave her a mahar, a marriage gift, uh, which was very valuable. He gave her 12 and a half, you know, uh, grams of gold as her mahar. And of course, what did she do with that? She used that, and again, taking care of the orphans and the poor in Medina. But very tragically, it actually mentions, she passed away two months after marrying the Prophet ﷺ. She passed away two months later. Right, so, but she, because of that, of course, you know, she had the honor and dignity of being forever remembered as a mother of the believers, right? As one of the wives of the Prophet and as a mother of the believers. So this also happened during the fourth year uh, of Hijrah. And lastly, and finally, uh, another um, interesting, notable uh, fact about the fourth year of Hijrah it's mentioned in uh, Sahih Bukhari uh, that it's mentioned in Sahih Bukhari yes but it's also mentioned in the books of Tirmidhi and Abu Dawood and other books as well um, that Zayd bin Thabit now who is Zayd bin Thabit very quickly I'll mention Zayd bin Thabit radiallahu ta'ala anhu is a young companion of the Prophet he's an Ansari he's from Medina he was one of the foremost Qurra and Hufad of the Quran he was a specialist in the area of the Qur'an. He was taught the Qur'an by the Prophet um, And the Prophet recommended him as a teacher of the Qur'an. Not only that, but he had also learned about inheritance law. Mirath. He had also learned about inheritance law from the Prophet And the Prophet says, أَعْلَمُكُمْ بِالْفَرَائِدِ زَيْدُ بْنُ ثَابِتِ that if you ever have a question about inheritance, go to Zayd bin Thabit. And the Sahaba themselves had so much confidence in him that when Abu Bakr radiallahu ta'ala anhu needed to create and appoint uh, a group, like a project manager, when it came to the compilation of the Qur'an after the passing of the Prophet Zayd bin Thabit was a project manager for the compilation of the Qur'an. And again, when Uthman radiallahu ta'ala anhu was publishing the Masahif and standardizing them to send to all four corners of the Muslim world, Zayd bin Thabit was a part of the panel that was appointed there. So he's a very sharp, very knowledgeable, respected companion of the Prophet He was very, very young at this time. And the Prophet you know, we've talked about a few incidents like Banu Nadir, Banu Qaynuqa, that the Prophet was having a difficult time in dealing with some of the Jewish tribes in and around Medina, the Prophet ﷺ became very skeptical and very doubtful of some of the Jewish translators. He felt that they were instigating and they wouldn't translate properly. So the Prophet ﷺ expressed, he said, I don't fully trust them. I would like to have one of my own people translating for me. So they said, okay. So he told Zayd bin Thabit, I want you to learn their language. I want you to learn Hebrew and study even their religious text and therefore be my translator. And so Zayd bin Thabit in the narration of the Sahih, he says, I learned the Hebrew language in 15 days. And I became the official translator of the Prophet So just such remarkable, talented, genius people. It reminds you of the statement of Abdullah bin Mas'ud, where he says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose these people for the companionship of the Messenger May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala allow us to benefit from the seerah, study the life of the Prophet and be inspired and be guided by it. As Abdullah bin Rawaha said, may the Prophet be our shining star that guides us in the darkness of the night. Subhanallah wa bihamdihi. سبحانك اللهم بحمدك نشهد ولا إله إلا أنت نستغفرك ونتوب إليك